Exodus 21. Exodus chapter 21. So this past week, the largest presidential debate in history, the history of our nation, took place uh, in the sense that you had 12 candidates on stage all at the same time uh, vying for the Democratic nomination. Uh, one time there were 20 candidates debating, but they had them on two different nights, 10 one night, 10 the other. So this was the largest single debate. It certainly was not a debate in the truest sense of the word, but there was a lot that was said. And there was much that I think should put Christians on their faces praying uh, that God would have mercy on our nation. But it was interesting, there was one word that was used over and over and over again by the candidates. In fact, it was used more than 20 times during the debate. It has become a buzzword for the progressive movement. And it was the word justice. The word justice. As we've seen in recent months, this word is being used today in a way very different than it is used in the Bible. Justice in Scripture refers to God's moral principles being upheld and ultimately His glory being defended. Justice is an expression of God's worth. And what is required to show His worth when His values and His priorities and His character are being degraded. So, for example, murder is terrible because people are created in the image of God. And to treat one of God's image bearers with disregard is to treat God himself with disregard. It is reverence for God that should lead us to treat each other with respect. And a lack of respect for fellow human beings comes from a lack of respect for God. In other words, every moral principle has its beginning and end with God. Every moral principle rightly understood is oriented around God. All things are from God and through God and for God. And that includes every principle of morality. And this is why secular societies in particular, godless societies are bound to get the most confused about issues of morality. Because when you deny even the idea of a God, you've lost the foundation of true justice. And everything is going to become relative. Principles of justice in a godless or secular society will always be moving targets. Principles of justice will be changing with the winds of culture. We see where we are now. Christians are called extremists by those who argue that there's no such thing as gender and that sodomy should be celebrated and that men should be allowed into bathrooms with our daughters. 
And Christians holding to the same ideas that have been understood by the vast majority of people and the vast majority of civilizations throughout the history of the world, we are now the ones called the extremists. Why? Because the winds have changed. The principles of justice have changed. They are moving. They are not fixed in a secular society. And what is called justice today will not be the same as what will be called justice 20 years, 40 years, 60 years from now. Uh, We even heard this week uh, Elizabeth Warren joking that a man who believes that marriage should be between one man and one woman is such a loser that he won't be able to find a wife. So with justice being redefined all around us, we need to renew our minds with the word of God. We need to come back to the Bible and learn about this subject. I think it is more timely than ever for Christians to be studying the Old Testament laws of God. Because it's in the Old Testament laws of God that we see God apply principles of justice to ancient Israel. And the application is not always going to be the same for us. Our society is a different society. Our culture is a different culture. But the abiding moral principles remain the same. And it's in particular those principles that need to be recovered and remembered and applied as we have opportunity. And if we're not careful, we will start talking about justice in a new way. If we're not careful, we will find ourselves riding with the culture. And already we see it in the Christian church. People using this word justice in ways that are very different than justice biblically defined. So right now we're looking at some of the commands that God gave ancient Israel concerning the most heinous crimes. Crimes deserving of death in ancient Israel. So look at Exodus 21. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. Exodus 21, verse 12. And here are some of the crimes that in ancient Israel were to be punished by death. Exodus 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if it did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willingly attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged. For the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fine, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, 
burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. And when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. And if it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. The ox shall be stoned. Last time, we gave our attention to the principle of justice that we find throughout Israel's law code. It's the principle in Obadiah 15, summarized this way. As you have done, so shall it be done to you. Uh, The golden rule teaches us that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. The golden rule of justice is that when someone has treated someone else maliciously, the same treatment is to be brought upon them. Uh, This is sometimes called lex talionis, that is the law of retaliation, or the law of reciprocity. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But we saw last time that there's more to it than that. In particular, God instructs Israel's judges to decide the cases that come before them in terms of both restoration and punishment. If harm has been done, but it was done accidentally, then only the principle of restoration is used. If I break your window by accident, I should pay and make sure that your window gets repaired or replaced. But that's all. It's a matter of restoration, making things right. But if I maliciously broke your window, if it was intentional, then not only is the judge to issue a a principle of restoration, but also a principle of punishment. I do need to pay for your window and restore things to as they were, but then some other penalty must be placed upon me that fits the crime that penalizes my malintent. If my ox accidentally gets loose and kills one of your sheep, I should make things right by giving you one of my sheep. But if my ox has a tendency of getting loose and killing animals, and I know this, and I do nothing to stop it, then the judge will have me give you one of my sheep in the place of the one you lost. But then also he may have me give you more of my sheep as penalty for my disregard. Or perhaps my ox will be taken away from me, or perhaps my ox will be ordered to killed. So we saw that in true justice, there is this principle of restoration when there was harm done. But then also punishment when it was maliciously done, when it was intentionally done. Well, tonight we're going to continue learning lessons about justice from this text. And here's the next one. And Exodus 21 is a chapter full of sticky issues. So we're just moving from one sticky issue to the next. But The next principle we see here is that true justice includes capital punishment. True justice includes capital 
punishment. So we're talking about the death penalty and whether or not societies, states, governments should employ the death penalty. Uh, Despite what you may hear from the U.S. media, the majority of Americans continue to support capital punishment for convicted murderers. According to the Gallup organization, the peak was 1994. In 1994, four out of five Americans, 80%, supported the death penalty. Since that year, the support for the death penalty has been slowly eroding. And as of last year, it's 56% of Americans that support the death penalty. Still more than half. It's not hard to see why 1994 might have been the peak of support. In that one year, you had the terrible massacre on the news that took place in Rwanda. You had also in the news the famous chase of O.J. Simpson with the news about the murder of his ex-wife just dominating the headlines. And perhaps more importantly, you had the trial and the conviction of the World Trade Center bombers. And in the face of that kind of evil, uh, many people found themselves saying they supported the death penalty. But many trace the intense moral revolution that we've been experiencing to our own day um, as beginning about that time. And as our culture has become increasingly secular, so it has also become increasingly less supportive of capital punishment. And frankly, we're simply following the path of Europe. Uh, Religious nations, nations that have a concept of God that is central to most of the lives of the citizens, religious nations have death penalty. It is secular nations, like those in Europe, that do not. In fact, every single European nation except Belarus has outlawed the death penalty. And there has not been a person put to death in Europe by court order outside of Belarus since 1997. And even then, that was in the Ukraine. There is a true correlation between a rejection of God, a resulting lower view of man, and opposition to the death penalty. The secular mindset says that man is just the highest form of animal. That we are nothing more than the next link on the evolutionary chain. That we are a meaningless conglomeration of matter and energy. And so with this view, the murder of another human being is simply not worth a penalty as severe as death. In our text, we see that there were several crimes in Israel that God declared as being punishable by death. That's not because God was needlessly severe. It's not because the God of the Old Testament is some sort of different, hostile God than the one we find in the New Testament. No, this is because God's regard for certain realities is so high. God values human life. God values parental authority. And it is because these things are to be held in such high esteem that the death penalty existed. So, is the death penalty a just form of punishment? Is it just? Well, 
think the biblical answer pretty clearly is that when it is properly carried out, yes, it is. The death penalty is just because it was established by a righteous authority, namely God himself. And let's be clear, God did not just establish the death penalty for ancient Israel. God established the death penalty to be used by all societies all the way back with Noah. So look in your Bibles back at Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. If you remember, we're told in Genesis 6.11 that the great reason that God decided to destroy the earth was a globe with a global flood was that mankind had become corrupt in God's sight and, quote, the earth was filled with violence. So why did God choose to destroy mankind with a global flood? The earth was filled with violence. Murder and a lack of regard for human life was part of what brought the flood. Disregard for human life had become rampant. God tells Israel in Numbers 35 that violence pollutes the ground. In Noah's day, the whole earth had become polluted due to the amount of violence that was taking place among men. So you have the flood, you have the ark, and then you have Noah stepping off the ark. and He immediately takes some of the animals that had survived all that time during the flood and he sacrifices them to God in worship and in gratitude. And then God speaks to Noah. And look at Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So after the flood, Noah steps off the ark. And one of the first things that God does is establish this abiding principle that is to mark life in this new humanity. All people are going to come from Noah. Noah and his family, they are the beginning of the new humanity. And God says, here is a principle that should mark all of these future societies. And if you remember from our study of Genesis, one of the things that God does in the book of Genesis to highlight anytime anything of uber importance is happening is he puts it into song. And this principle, verse 6, you'll notice it's indented. It looks different in formatting. It's a song. Notice three aspects of capital punishment here. Notice first and foremost that it is God who is requiring this. And God is the very essence of justice and righteousness. None is just and righteous as God is. It is God that is requiring this reckoning. Verse 5, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. To say that the death penalty, that capital punishment is unjust, is to try and be more just than God. And there's no such thing. To be just in a way that God is not is truly to be unjust. For God is just and righteous. Second, notice that God requires this reckoning to be carried out by men. 
God doesn't declare that he's going to act apart from men or that he's going to wait till the day of judgment to deal with those who murder. No, he says in verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is the foundation of human governments. This is the foundation of the judicial systems of the world. This is why in Romans 13, Paul talks about human governments working as God's servants, not bearing the sword in vain. Not bearing the sword. Not the keys to the prison cell. The sword. You and I are never to seek revenge for ourselves. That's clear. We saw that. Romans 12. We are not to seek revenge for ourselves. Rather, vengeance is something that God has given into the the authority of human governments, human authorities, political powers. Romans 13, 4, talking about the governor. He is God's servant for your good. If you do a wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So it is God's wrath, it is God's reckoning that is being carried out, and it's being carried out by man, but not just any man, by human authorities. And then finally note here that the reason murder deserves such a penalty is not because of any inherent value in man, but because man is made in God's image. It's in the song. That's the reason given for capital punishment. In other words, if you could somehow disconnect man from God, then that would change the calculation here. But you cannot disconnect man from God. So many of God's macro attributes have been given to man in micro. We are his image bearers. God's stamp is upon us, and it is because God's stamp is upon us that we are valuable. It is the worth of his glory that is at stake in this issue. It was because of God's glory being trampled in the violence of men that the earth was wiped out by a global flood of judgment. And it is because of God's glory that the murder of another human being is so significant. And this is why societies with a low view of God or especially no view of God are just not going to be able to think rightly about this issue. So capital punishment is just because it is required by a righteous authority. God himself, turn back to Exodus 21, and we'll see that this is also just because it is required for a righteous reason. Namely, the value of what is being disregarded in the crime. Here in Exodus 21, in these laws, we see capital punishment for murder, for kidnapping, and for utter disregard of parental authority. So that tells us in God's calculus, human life, human dignity, and parental authority are valuable, so valuable that they are not to be infringed upon at the cost of our lives. We need to make sure that our priorities reflect God's priorities. We don't want to be doing a new math. Okay, We want God's math. 
We want God's estimation of what is true and right and valuable. We see that he has a reverence for human life. He has a reverence for human dignity. He has a reverence for the family. Our reverence for those things should match his. But then capital punishment is also righteous and just because God has given us a righteous method. You see, one principle that we see throughout God's laws for Israel is that he is a God of decency and a God of order. And our God is a God who does not punish the innocent. And so over and over again, actually in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have this repeated principle that no one is to be convicted without the testimony of at least two witnesses. Numbers 35.30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So you saw somebody kill somebody else. You witnessed it. You saw it. You're the only witness. No capital punishment. Capital punishment was only to take place on the testimony of two or more witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Do you know how broad that is? Let's read that again. This isn't just about murder. Listen to this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Again, that's Deuteronomy 19.15. You see that just as God is zealous about the dignity of life, That same zealousness, that same zeal for the dignity of life means that we're not going to have anyone charged with crimes on the basis of only one testimony. Because your witness might be a witness that just doesn't like that person. Maybe it's a false witness. And this didn't just apply to murder. It applied to all offenses. It's the basis of Matthew 18, 16. Jesus instructs us to take one or two along with us to confront someone about a sin if they were unwilling to hear us alone, right? If I see you in a sin, I'm first supposed to just go to you as a brother and counsel with you and say, hey, you need to repent of this. But if you're not responding well, I'm to bring one or two others with me. Why? So that there will be a testimony of witnesses to your refusal if you continue to refuse to repent. This is also the basis of 1 Timothy 5.19. Paul says we must not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, So Paul's taking this principle and he's just applying it to life. This is a principle for our lives. Don't accept accusations without the testimony of at least two people. I bet every one of you in here have had times where people have whispered in your ears certain accusations about certain people. And there's something in our nature, something wicked in human nature that just wants to immediately believe the worst, that just wants to assume it's true. But love hopes all things. And so love says, no, we need this verified before we believe it. 
That can be tough. That can be tricky. That can be difficult when you're trying to do the right thing. But that's the principle. Now, because these charges had to be verified by at least two witnesses, you see how important witnesses are in God's principles of justice. And this is why lying witnesses are so repugnant to God. I mean, there's so much at stake. A person's life might be at stake. A person can lose their life if there are two or more lying witnesses. In fact, that's how Jesus ended up on the cross, isn't it? There were lying witnesses. This is why the ninth commandment, often we'll say the ninth commandment says you shall not lie. And certainly that abiding principle is there. But the actual wording of the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And in Proverbs 6, six things the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. One of those sins that is particularly an abomination to God is a false witness who breathes out lies. So, why is capital punishment just? Well, it's established by a righteous authority. It's established with righteous reasons. And we're given a righteous method. So if the Bible is so clear on this, why do some Christians oppose the death penalty? And the number of Christians in our own day who oppose the death penalty is increasing. Well, many argue that the death penalty is fine in theory, but impossible to carry out appropriately in practice. Okay? So there are many who will say, hey, I agree with what you've just said. In theory, the death penalty, yes. But in practice, we're just not equipped well enough to do it. They point to three realities of recent decades. First, a lot of light has been shown on those statistics that cause people to doubt the fairness of our judicial system. For example, why are so many of those sentenced to death row black men? And why are so many of those sentenced to death black men convicted of killing white people? And why does black-on-black murder seem to get the death penalty far less often than black-on-white murder? It has also been pointed out that almost the entirety of people who are on death row today were unable to afford their own attorney, while those who can't afford high-priced attorneys almost never end up on death row. That seems to smell of injustice. That seems to smell of principles of law not being administered fairly. Justice is supposed to be blind to color, blind to class. Second, anti-death penalty groups have managed to put pressure on states and drug companies concerning the actual drugs that are injected in carrying out capital punishment. The claim has been made with some evidence that the convicted person is being made to suffer by those drugs as they die. And you know that our Constitution forbids any sort of cruel or unusual punishment. The argument being made is that the judge issued the sentence of death, but that is not the same thing as the sentence of a a painful death. And if these drugs are causing these folks to be 
hurting as they die, then that is torture that is unconstitutional and we ought not to participate in it. That kind of pressure has also made the drug companies that were producing the drugs used in lethal injections hesitant to continue producing those drugs. And so based on that, many states, including our own, have placed the death penalty on something of a hiatus. The official claim is that we need more certainty about the drugs being used and that we need to be able to access them. And right now, the appropriate drugs for lethal injection, we're told, are not available. And then third, on top of this, we have to note that groups like the Innocence Project have helped overturn the convictions of a significant number of people who were on death row. Uh, The Innocence Project in particular has helped prove that these people were innocent of the crimes for which they were convicted. And had their executions been carried out, it would have been the execution of innocent people. As the number of people exonerated from death row has increased, it has made people all the more wary about capital punishment in our society. So when you take all those facts into consideration, there are many Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, conservative Christians who argue we simply cannot, at this time, practice the death penalty in our country. I do not believe we should just dismiss those arguments. I believe they are significant. I believe they do cry out for something to be done. I do not believe we should dismiss them. I think they show that our legal system is truly flawed. I think they show that real reform is needed. But the fact that reform is needed should not allow us to become comfortable Adopting principles of justice contrary to Scripture and contrary to true morality. God's glory is at stake here. And so is human dignity. And God did not give us Genesis 9, 5, and 6 and put it into song so that we could believe it in theory but not obey it in practice. If we are going to have a just society... And if we're going to have judges who perform their duties faithfully, we must find a way to ensure fair trials. And as for carrying out the death penalty, we must not allow the imperfection of methods to keep us from obedience. Today, there are 2,629 death row inmates in the United States. Their lives continue to speak of injustice. Because each one of them murdered others maliciously and yet continued to be well fed and clothed and housed and treated with a regard contrary to the way they treated their victims. Obadiah 15 says, as you have done, so it shall be done to you. Our judicial system is simply not practicing justice. We should not torture anyone. We should not find pleasure in cruelty, but those who have intentionally and maliciously murdered others should be put to death and in a timely manner. And frankly, there are many, many more who are not on death row today because prosecutors now refuse to seek the death penalty 
because they judge it not worth the time and the effort considering the state of the death penalty in our culture. We need to mention this issue of timeliness. Timeliness. Dr. Moeller says there is in the United States right now an incredible distance between the crime and the eventual conviction. And if a conviction does come, then especially as we look to the death penalty in modern America, there is an extraordinary and inexcusable period of time now between conviction and the eventual carrying out of a sentence. The reality is most people now on death row in the United States do not fear any imminent execution. They are not looking to any swift justice. Many of them, if not most of them, almost assuredly will die of old age in prison rather than by execution. So because our judicial system is so slow, there is this long period of time, decades often, between conviction and execution. King Solomon. King Solomon was a man who was in one of these positions of authority. These are the kinds of issues that he as a king would have to think through. In Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11, we find these words of wisdom. Solomon says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Let's read that again. Solomon says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So we have in God's word this reality. When there is a great amount of time between crime and punishment, people's hearts, Solomon says, are actually strengthened in doing evil. Punishments are supposed to have a deterring effect. Punishments are meant to say, this matters, life matters, human dignity matters. If you violate something so sacred, swift judgment will come upon you. But when punishments no longer speak that message, because they happen so long after the crime, Solomon says they end up having the opposite effect. They actually help to inspire crime. What does he say? The heart of the children of man is then fully set to do evil. These these, uh, pushed-off punishments encourage people to commit crimes with less fear, with less anxiety. Most of us are not in a position of authority in government. Let's make a great deal of difference here. We do get to vote. We do get to have a say. I do think there is a principle here about timeliness that can be used, for example, for parents and disciplining their children. Delayed punishment is not just punishment. And so it is in our society. What are some takeaways? As I was trying to think about our takeaways, the, the first thing that came to my mind is, boy, we need to pray for those who are trying to make a difference here. It is hard to be a politician of integrity in our culture. And from my limited interaction with Christians in the judicial system, it is very frustrating for them. They are living in a very frustrating world with limited resources and often feeling like their hands are tied. 
We need to pray for those politicians and those in the judicial system who have some power to bring some reform and to establish justice concerning this issue. We should also be praying for our culture, that there would be a growth in respect for human life and human dignity. But we can do more than just pray. Praying is huge, not denigrating it, it's huge. But alongside our lives of prayer, we should lead the way by making sure that we treat every person we meet with respect and with dignity because they are image bearers of God. Amen? I don't assume at all that all of you in here agree with that. So feel free to push back. Feel free to ask questions. Any, any questions or pushback on, on the things that were, were shared tonight?